0: The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games, with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tail of a Manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last Time on Tale of the Manticore In Chapter 5, we met Raffenfel the Adored. He had been using the ruined tower in the Kingswood as a secret base of operations and expanding it underground to accommodate his laboratory. Raffenfell has the spell ESP, which allows him to magically read the thoughts of others, even through stone. And so he has learned that a number of intruders are searching his home, and that his apprentice has been slain. He is too prudent to confront these intruders, but he decides to leave them a nasty surprise before making his escape. To this end, he speaks to his quote-unquote angels, warning them that the time has come to defend against approaching demons. Meanwhile, the party has discovered German's humble living quarters, which he has made in the old tower barracks. Although they are delighted to find a small feast of German's rations, the real treasure is found by Umura when she discovers German's spellbook concealed under his study desk. The party guesses that someone else still lives in the complex, this realization prompts them to search beyond the heavy door in the circular room. When they open it, they find only a storage room. However, set in the floor, in the corner of the storage room, is a trapdoor. Most of the group are not happy at the prospect of going yet deeper into the earth. Chapter 6 Part 1 Day 2 Evening Status Soli 4 out of 9 hit points Kagan Sitting out this episode as he recuperates in Dermond's room Umura 3 out of 5 hit points Girios 6 out of 7 hit points Eridine 4 out of 4 hit points Umura has memorized shield Girios was a brave man and did not usually have too much trouble mastering his apprehensions. He had given up his entire way of life in Camranth. He had left his home and his country, perhaps never to return. He had walked endless roads, often alone, often at night, to spread the word of Mazagar. The word was not always met with an open heart and mind. Frequently, the truth drew hostility. And so for Garius, danger was a constant companion as was fear. But somehow, he could not shake the feeling that this simple trapdoor felt like death. Master Soly, he said, might I have one of your coins? A gold one. I promise to return it in time. Of course, replied Soly, fishing for a coin in the pouch. There are no more mine than yours. You can carry the whole pouch if you want to. Just the one coin will do. Thank you. Girios accepted the coin and polished it with his thumb. He sighed and relaxed visibly. Presently, he pressed the coin to his forehead and spoke the following Camranthian prayer. Almighty Mazagar, giver of the sun, we mere mortals pray in your sight. We glory in your sight, as we are born from darkness to the light, and we shall join you when prayers are done. Return into the darkness and the earth. Descend into darkness and earth. We praise you from the first day of our birth. There was a moment of awkward silence while the party members groped for something to say. That was beautiful, said Aradine. Was that a prayer for the birth of a child? It's a burial rite, replied the priest. Though I agree, it is beautiful and... Somehow it seemed appropriate. I'd never thought of it as literal before. Listen, said Umura, apparently sharing their apprehension. Perhaps we do not need to go any further. We have a few coins, a few weapons. We could escape this evil forest and find an inn, a town. Kaken is badly injured and needs more care than we can give him here. If there's anyone else down there, she pointed to the trapdoor with a slender finger. He can stay there and rot. What do we care? We can push that heavy trunk on top of this door and just go. I'm not sure I can leave, said Soli, slowly, looking suddenly very grey. His eyes had a haunted look. Yes, you can, replied Umora. We just turn around and go. It's as simple as that. If there's another person here in the business of buying people, as has been done to us... Can we really permit him to carry on?" asked Gyrios, rhetorically. Not for the first time, Gyrios' insights forced everyone to reflect. Just then, from somewhere deep, deep underground, came a terrible sound. It started low, but it rose until it broke. Even from so far away, for so it sounded, there was no mistaking the sound of someone in pain. I definitely can't leave," said Soli. He looked absolutely miserable. All right, all right, you, we, we'll go down, we'll, we'll go down there. Nobody moved. Oh, you humans are an odd bunch, said Soli, shaking his head and snapping out of whatever mood had possessed him. It's just a tunnel for the love of gold. The dwarf now looked more like his old self. He walked over to the trapdoor. Step aside, priest. You don't think a dwarf is going to let a human be the first down a hole, do you? The dwarf squatted and took the ring in his small hands. He grunted and lifted it straight up. It groaned ominously and revealed a yawning black pit beneath. As Umura brought the lamp forward, they could see an ancient-looking wooden stairway descending into the blackness. The odd smell they had noticed before was present here, too. It had a medicine-like quality and stung the nose. Although the odor was stronger here, its nature still eluded them. Soli was already on the staircase. It groaned under his weight. He turned back to share some advice. Maybe we better go one at a time. One by one, they followed him down. The square room at the bottom was constructed of unfinished, hard-packed earth. Its only features were the shelves built into each wall from floor to ceiling. The shelves were mostly bare and dust-laden, although it appeared one section was still in use. There was a small basket of wild radishes and another of turnips. A few loose carrots were lined up neatly beside one of the baskets. The ceiling was supported by unfinished logs. Rusty iron hooks had been driven into them at regular intervals, and most, like the shelves, were bare. However, a few had drying sprigs of herbs, roots or mushroom caps hanging from them. To Umura's dismay, though not to her surprise, there was another passage leading out of the room. Steps dug directly into the earth, went down sharply and then curved out of sight. She took a deep breath. They were all listening to see if the cry would return, although they were afraid to hear it again. Instead of a moan, they heard a different sound. "'Was that?' began Gyrios. "'Chains,' replied Aridine flatly. "'There's something down there,' whispered Umura. Her hands had begun to shake of their own accord. Noticing this, Girios put a soothing hand on her shoulder. "'Courage, mage.' Soli moved toward the opening, but before stepping into the narrow passage, he stopped as if having noticed something. He ran his hands over the walls. This tunnel was made recently. Very recently. Probably in the last year. Just look at the color of the earth on this side, and then over here. It looks the same to me. Eridine whispered back. It seemed everyone had unanimously decided to start speaking more quietly. It does? I can never tell when you humans are kidding. Give me a moment. I'm going to see if it's trapped. Dwarves have an innate ability to detect traps, sliding walls, direction, sloping corridors, and new constructions underground. I take it as a given that Soli would detect this new construction, as it is fairly obviously an extension of the original complex. To detect traps, Soli will need to roll a 1 or 2 and a 1-die-6. Let's see what he gets. I've rolled a 2. Soli lets the others know the tunnel is safe and leads the group forward down the narrow steps. Behind him come Girios, then Umura holding the lamp, and Aridine in the back. As they descend, the odor becomes markedly more pronounced. Umura is positive. She knows it from somewhere. Dramatis Personae Umura Umura was never called a beautiful child. But in her youth, she did have a lively spirit, a great curiosity, and there was something about her eyes. Her eyes shone with intelligence. Today she was wearing a plain black dress, and her hair was tied with black ribbons. All of her other dresses were of lively colors, blue, yellow, and pink. She had as many dresses as there were days in a week, but this dress was her only black one, and she knew instinctively that on the days she was made to wear it, something serious must be happening with the grown-ups. A fat finger wagged in her face. And you will not play outside today, Umura. Pay attention. You will not get a single speck of dust on this dress, understood? Yes, governess Nogana, said Umura. Then, as she had been instructed always to do, she repeated her instructions. I shall get not one speck on my dress. This answer seemed to dissatisfy the governess, It was the answer Umura was required to give of that she was certain. Yet, the woman looked somehow distressed. You had better not, young lady, she said, and straightened her back with a grimace. You will be at the chapel in one hour. Do not be late. I warn you. Yes, governess. One hour. I am not to be late. Umura kept her head bowed until the woman had turned and waddled off. Then she stuck out her tongue and made a face. Miserable old bat, thought Umura, Nothing better to do than pick on children. Umura was 12 years old. She had yet to have her first lesson with the sages, yet to earn her first tattoo. She was a part of the wealthy Anaxon family, a pedigree that brought with it a great deal of prestige, but also expectation. Her family owned several estates. This one was just outside the great city of Chahal. It was a beautiful castle. And with 15 bedrooms, to a little girl, it was enormous. But Umura knew every inch of it. Of course, there were some places she was not permitted to play. Others, she was not permitted to enter at all. The chapel was one of the former, so she had been there many times. It was a lovely place to spend an afternoon, attending prayers to the goddess. When the sun was out, it passed through high stained glass windows and bathed the whole chapel in pink and orange. It was ever so pretty. The chapel wasn't far from here. She would need a distraction if she was going to spend a whole hour without dying of boredom. She knew where to go. Umura ran through the halls until she reached the solar. Strange, she thought as she ran. Where is everybody? It felt good to exert energy and she ran faster, giggling for no reason. She burst through the door to find Egoan and Maris speaking in low tones, seated in front of the unlit fireplace. This solar was another of her favorite places. The fireplace was flanked by two pedestals. Each displayed a masterfully sculpted wyvern, frozen in a position to suggest they were diving down on some prey. Egoan, tall and fair, was her eldest cousin. He was seventeen years old and practically an adult. He seemed very unhappy about something. Dark-haired Maris was Egoin's younger brother. They were her second cousins on her mother's side. At 14, Maris was still very much a boy. In fact, he was quite immature for his age and often played with Umura when he wasn't taking on airs and pretending as though he was the heir apparent of Zesha. I just think I should have been invited, insisted Egoin to the other boy. That's all. Do they still take me for a boy? He pulled back his sleeve to reveal three tattoos, and displayed them as a kind of proof of his elder status. Then what are these? Well, they did say immediate family only. I suppose we don't qualify. Maris finally addressed Umura's presence. Not now. Can't you see we're talking? Umura ignored the question. Governess says you were to include me in your conversation. She lied. That's more than a little far-fetched, even for you, little cuz. Said Maris, already looking fed up. Go play by yourself. No said Umura. For some reason, she made up her mind then and there to win this argument. Maybe it was the smug look on Maris's face. Well, dearest cuz, if you really want in on our conversation, he began, if you really feel the need for honesty at this time, Maris, no, said Egoan. I do, insisted Umura. Then it's my duty to tell you. Last night, your grandfather died in his bed. They found him this morning, His sheets were covered with his own filth and piss. Umura was stunned. She had no words and instead broke out into hot tears. Maris, you know you can be a real bastard sometimes, said Egoan. That was nasty, even for you. Umura, calm down. But Umura did not calm down. Something welled up inside her. How could it be true? She had spoken to her grandfather last night and he had kissed her on her forehead and told her he loved her. But, Governess Nogana's face, the empty halls, this private conversation. Umura could do sums. She'd known that something was wrong, and this was it. She ran back into the hall and took the first turn that came along, then another, and then another. As long as she kept running, she wouldn't have to think about it. She didn't intend for her feet to take her there, but she ended up racing toward the chapel, where she found every adult in the castle present and dressed in black. She charged up to the group and started pushing through the crowd, letting her tears fall as she went. She had to get inside. She had to see his face. She didn't even know why. Her entire field of vision was filled with a forest of black robes. Someone called out, "Amora, stop!" It was her mother's commanding voice. After that, it was her father's. Leave her be, Bricienne. She has to see this eventually. The black robes parted before her like curtains and she found herself at the chapel's center. At first she saw her grandfather's feet. They were so small, chewed in golden slippers. Raising her eyes, she saw his white robes, likewise embroidered with golden thread. Her grandfather was seated on a throne of purest white marble. Across his lap lay the rod called Wyvern's Kiss. Its scalloped ebony shaft was topped with a draconian head fashioned of gold. The worm's mouth was stretched wide around a ruby the size of a cherry. Finally, Umura looked up at her grandfather's face. His skin was smooth. His long white hair and beard combed perfectly straight. His eyes had been removed and replaced with balls of pure silver. The priestess of Aheya, goddess of magic, intoned her grandfather's name, and it felt as though all of Merith shook. Hyrun Anaxan, fifth of your name, Archmagus. May your spirit watch over this house for eternity. To Umura, he was terrifying and beautiful. She drew closer and closer. And that was when the smell hit her. Are you a rookie dungeon master lost in the vast and seemingly endless world of Dungeons and Dragons? Or perhaps you're a veteran game master with renowned TPK abilities, but you wish someone would just appreciate all the finer details you put into the game. Uh, yeah dude, we hear ya. Ignorant Dreams of a Rookie Dungeon Master is not just an advice show filled to the brim with tons of great information on how to become a better DM. No, it's a community for the self-loathing, narcissistic, and delusion-filled figures behind the screen who keep this whole game of going. So, next time you find yourself with a big question about dungeon mastering, or you need an attaboy from people just as crazy as you, tune in to Ignorant Dreams of a Rookie Dungeon Master anywhere you get your podcast fix. Chapter 6, Part 2, Day 2, Evening, Status, Soli, 4 out of 9 hit points, Umura, 3 out of 5 hit points, Girios, 6 out of 7 hit points, Aradine, 4 out of 4 hit points, Spells available, Umura has memorized shield. By the time they reached the bottom of the narrow stairway, the strange odor had become much more pronounced. In fact, it seemed to get stronger with every step. Umura finally recognized it. I know this smell, she whispered. It's embalming agent. By Mazagar, I think you may be right, Girios whispered back. It's made from pine resin, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Umora confirmed. "And oil. Eredin had her hand over her mouth, and Soli was making a face. I don't like it, he declared. I'm afraid to know what might be the cause of this smell, considering how strong it is. Girios conceded. Umura was frightened too, but since remembering her grandfather's face, she felt an inner strength growing inside her. Hiren Anuksan's spirit was watching over her. She believed that thoroughly. From somewhere in the distance, once again, came the sound of moaning. Give me strength, she whispered, a prayer to her guardian spirit. You're beginning to sound like him, said Soli, hooking his thumb over his shoulder in Gyrios's direction. There's something at the end of the tunnel, whispered Aradine. Ahead of them, the passage opened into a room. They crept closer, moving in single file, with the light held high. Little by little, the details came into view. It was made of packed earth, with ceilings supported by unfinished logs, as they'd seen in the root cellar. It was roughly rectangular and there was a single exit a door set in the far corner in a heavy wooden frame that connected to the rafters the room was a disaster broken glass littered the entire floor which also seemed covered in a layer of grayish muck a pair of cauldrons had been overturned in one corner where a rude chimney had been built into the wall a long table had been flipped on its side and one of the legs had been snapped off Wet papers lay in drifts in the muck, as did various sacks, jars, files, and loose mounds of unidentifiable compounds. I think this was some kind of laboratory, said Umura. A grim wailing and a rattle of chains came from behind the door in answer. Whatever was making that sound, it wasn't far away. Umura bent down to examine some items on the floor. There's no time for that, insisted Solly, no longer whispering. Come on, I'm not sure it's safe to step in... Umura's sentence trailed off. The dwarf, barefoot as they all were, walked straight across the floor heedless of the broken glass. Now I wish I'd taken that dead man's boots, complained Gerios as he followed the dwarf, stepping carefully. Umura would have preferred to spend several hours going over the contents of this room, but she knew the dwarf was right and a more pressing matter was at hand. She grabbed a handful of the driest looking papers as well as a pair of intact vials containing some grey liquid and stuffed it all in her shoulder bag. Wait up, Soli, I'm coming. Soli did not wait and was already at the door. It had no lock and the dwarf wasted no time with precautions. He pulled it open and stepped through. The others followed as hastily as they dared. When Umura brought the lamp into the hall, she saw that the room opened into another tunnel this one was longer than the last. Up and to the left was an opening, but straight ahead, some fifty or sixty feet, was the obvious source of the cries they'd been hearing. Soli was already jogging down the passage, apparently with no mind to what the others were doing. Morgi? They heard him call. Morgi? Is it you? Mol Morg- When they caught up to the dwarf, he stood as still as a statue. Something at the end of the tunnel was moving, but something about it looked wrong. Umura wasn't sure what it was. She lifted the lantern and strained to see. Advancing toward them were three figures. They moved with unnatural, jerking motions, as if they were marionettes, controlled by some puppeteer who had not quite gotten the hang of his art. The forms were human, possibly. One seemed a man, one a woman, and one a young boy. All three were stark naked, filthy, with long, matted hair, and long, yellow fingernails. This was where their humanity ended, for their skin was a mottled gray color. Even in the poor light of the lamp, Umura could see that it was not simply grime, but their actual pigmentation. Their eyes were the worst of all. There were no irises, no whites, just black holes in their skull-like faces. Two of the creatures dragged mining implements behind them, and the companions stood in stunned terror as they raised their faces and howled. Umura could see that Gyrios's hand was shaking the way her grandfathers used to. The priest raised his gold coin in the air. Go back to your graves, he commanded. Nothing happened. The creatures still advanced. Gyrios steadied himself and tried again. Creatures of undeath shall burn in the eternal light of Mazagar. The terrible things, whatever they were, reared back and charged. In Dungeons & Dragons, clerics have the ability to turn undead, or at least the chance to do so. On a successful roll, a cleric can force undead to flee in the presence of his or her holy symbol. For some, more powerful clerics, the result might be automatic, or it might destroy the undead outright. What Gyrios does not know is, these creatures are not undead at all, though they might be said to have lost their souls. These creatures are Raffenfell's angels. They are his successful laboratory experiments, created over time by having been fed a special serum every day. Each dose of the serum reduces the drinker's intelligence and wisdom scores by one point permanently. When any person's intelligence and wisdom are reduced to three in this way, they become an angel and are completely susceptible to Raffenfel's suggestions. The angels, when reduced to this state, will do anything and believe everything their master says. You can see the full creature description at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com, but for now, Here's a quick description. The Angels have one plus two hit dice, so they will min out at six hit points. The reason for their toughness is that they feel no pain. Even losing a limb will not cause an Angel to stop attacking or even hesitate. Without a weapon, they can scratch and bite for one to two points of damage. Their armor class is nine. Being technically still alive, they cannot be turned, and they never check morale. They are extremely susceptible to charm, sleep, and other mind-influencing spells, and always save at a disadvantage against these. The three angels facing the party right now have the following stats. I've rolled a 4, a 2, and an 8 on 3d8. So two of the angels will min out at six hit points, while the largest of the group has the maximum ten hit points. I'm sure he will not go down easily. The young angel must fight with teeth and nails, but the woman is armed with a shovel, and the man carries a pick. These tools can each inflict one to four points of damage in combat. To complicate matters, the hull here is very narrow, and so the fighting will need to happen one on one. If need be, I'll let Soli, who's in front, attempt a fighting withdrawal, but he'll have to take a risk to pull it off. As the angels have no sense of strategy, they'll all charge the party at the same time. I'll roll a die six to see which one gets there first. On a one or a two, the child will attack first. On a three or a four, the woman. If the party is unlucky enough to roll a five or six, they'll have to deal with the toughest of the lot first. Here's the roll. It's a five. The biggest one has pushed his way to the front. Say a little prayer to Mazagar for the party. This isn't going to be pretty. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy what you've heard, please consider leaving a five-star review for the show on iTunes. It helps a great deal. For show notes, more behind-the-scenes info, rants, and random thoughts. Please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com Our story continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls.